0: So my favorite restaurant, my favorite restaurant is Major's, and that's not just because we have the owner's daughters who go to our church. My favorite restaurant is, is Major's. I, I love to get their, their their cheeseburger and fries. You know, you got to get the fries because the fries are like just the bomb there, but, but the cheeseburger, it's got those grilled onions on it, and then one of the things I love about Majors is the cheese is always melted. It's not like this cold slap of cheese that they just throw on there, and you're like, man, this doesn't even—but it's like melted, and it's gooey, and it just is so good. So it is a treat when I get to go to Majors. It is it is, it is a treat for me. And there was a time where a couple, couple of months ago, my wife and my kids, they were out someplace else and i was by myself and so i said yeah i'm gonna go to majors and i'm gonna get takeout i'm gonna go home and i'm gonna probably put the game on and i'm gonna sit there and have a great time by myself and so i go to majors i go through the drive-through and and do my thing and and i get to the house and i get my 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 little plate all ready and my, my dr pepper and i'm, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm just ready and then the doorbell doorbell rings and i'm like oh man and i go to the door and it's our neighbor and our neighbor is 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 a nice guy but sometimes he just starts talking to you and he just starts talking about things that you like you really have no care about you know he came over i think because one of the kids did something or something and he starts going on about this and that and i i have this thing where where sometimes i have a hard time saying No. And so he just starts talking and he keeps talking. And like 15 minutes later, I go and I sit back down and a 15 minute old cheeseburger that's been sitting out is no longer as good as it once was. It loses the appeal. The French fries are are soggy and they're cold and it's just not what I wanted. It was a complete letdown. And it was kind of like, you know, you had all this excitement was this was going to be so good. And then it was a, just a complete letdown. Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in, in Mark chapter 5 today. And uh, Mark chapter 5, we're going to see a story that's very similar to, to what I just described. In Mark chapter 5, there's a guy by the name of Jairus. He's a ruler in the synagogue. And he, he has a daughter who is sick. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, would you come quickly? Come, hurry. My daughter is sick and I know she's going to die. So Jesus, if you come, you can heal my daughter. And so Jesus starts on the way with Jairus and, and, and eventually he gets interrupted. He's interrupted by a woman with some sort of sickness, some sort of blood sickness that has affected her for 12 years. And and Jairus is saying, no, remember, here's here's what we got to do. We got to go and eat that cheeseburger, Jesus. We got to get over to heal my daughter. But Jesus is interrupted by this woman. And we're going to see how that has effects. This could have been a letdown. This could have been a complete letdown to Jairus that Jesus was interrupted on his way to healing his daughter. But But what Mark does is Mark is going to use these two stories, the story of Jairus and his daughter, and the story of this woman with the blood issue. Mark is going to use these stories to teach us that Jesus has power over both sickness as well as power over death. In fact, the last couple of weeks that we've been studying uh, in in Mark chapter 4 and 5, Mark has been trying to help us understand exactly who Jesus is. Two weeks ago, we read the story about Jesus calming the storm, about, about the disciples and Jesus being on the boat, and there's a, a effectual hurricane happening, and Jesus, all he has to do is speak a word, and the storm is calmed. The winds die down, the waves are, are, are level and flat, and it becomes this picture that Jesus has power over nature. Jesus has power over storms. Then last week, uh, Jim Herring, thankful for him stepping in and and speaking last week, he taught about Jesus healing the man that was possessed with an evil spirit. He he taught us that Jesus has power over evil. Jesus has power over darkness. And so today, today we're going to see through these stories that Jesus does in fact have power over sickness. And Jesus does in fact have power over death. And really, this whole entire section of showing who Jesus is really begins to help us to understand that we can really give our lives to Jesus. That, that the worst of the world can throw at us. The worst things of the world can throw at us. They can throw storms at us. They can throw evil at us. We can experience sickness. We can experience death. And this, this, this section is trying to teach us that the worst things that this world can do to us, Jesus has power over and this becomes something that we can begin to say, you know what, this Jesus truly is someone that I can commit my life to because he has power over the worst that this world can offer me. So before we jump in and start reading, would you, would you pray with me? God, we are thankful for the opportunity to open up your word. And be able to have your word speak to us. God, I pray that you would help us to uh, realize we're not listening to a pastor give his opinions. But God, we want your word to be loud. We want your word to be clear. God, I want you to speak to me directly today. God, I want you to speak to every one of us in here today. That you would draw us to, our, to yourself. That you would help us grow further in our faith. That you would help us to understand that we can completely trust you. That we can give our lives to follow you. Because you are this wonderful, amazing, great God with power over everything this world has to offer. Jesus, we love you. We pray for your presence with us right now. We ask this in your name. Amen. So first, let's get an introduction to the characters in our stories. Uh, again, there's two stories. There's a story of Jairus that kind of gets interrupted by the story of uh, the woman with the, ble- with the issue of blood. And then we're going to come back to the story of Jairus at the end. So we'll start verse 21. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Here's what it says. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and alive. And Jesus went with him. See, Jairus, he was a religious leader. He was a ruler in the synagogue. In fact, some of the commentators think that he was the, the, the head ruler of the synagogue. So he would have been uh, essentially the, the, the president of the elder board of the church. He was responsible for organizing the church services. He was, he, he was a pretty powerful guy in that synagogue. So he would have been a man of great devotion to God. Morally, he would have been respectable. And additionally, he would have been a figure of, of, of status. He would have been a figure of, 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 of wealth and social prominence in that setting. Jesus, we know Jesus was a little bit of an outsider. He, he was a little bit of an outsider. In fact, recently he had been accused by some of these religious leaders of, of heresy. He was accused of being in cohorts with Satan himself. In fact, the last time that he was in the synagogue, if you remember, there was a controversy because Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. And this created this controversy between Jesus and the rulers of the synagogue. And Jesus got run out of that synagogue because he healed that man on a Sunday. So what's amazing about this is we've got Jairus, who's the leader. Jairus is the leader. And here he is. He is coming to Jesus. He's the one who comes to Jesus. Jairus has got to know that, 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 that there's implications for him doing this. I mean, this is a sacrifice on his part. This is not going to go well with the religious leaders of his day. If they see him come to Jesus, this isn't going to sit well with him. This is going to have implications for his role as one of the rulers in the synagogue. But, but not only that, not only did Jairus come to Jesus, but it said very clearly that Jairus bows down in humility with all that he had. Because he had this fear for his little girl's life, this is amazing. This is amazing indeed. But but one of the things we must not have this 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 view that well, Jairus he obviously is a follower of Jesus. There's really you know there there, there's an idea that maybe he's beginning to put faith in Jesus, but we can't say for sure that he is a true follower of Jesus. I mean, the, the simple fact was Jairus was desperate; his daughter was dying. Any parent who's had their kids be sick or had their kids experience something, we would all say, man, I would give my life. I would change my place. I would change the place of my sick child any day. I mean, this is what a parent would do. And so so he's desperate. He's heard of Jesus's miracles. Maybe he's even talked to some of the people who have been healed by Jesus. And so he's heard this and, and he's not sure about Jesus, but he realizes, man, I don't have any other choice. I don't have any other chance to see my daughter get saved. So that's, that's the first character we learned about this guy by the name of Jairus. The second character continues in verse—we get introduced in verse 24. Continues in verse 24, it says, He went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged with him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. This gal had some sort of uh, blood issue, some sort of of blood discharge, maybe a hemorrhage of some sort. And she's experienced this for 12 years, 12 years of constant bleeding. Now, according to their Jewish society, this constant bleeding would have made her ceremonially unclean which meant that she was a transmitter of uncleanness to anyone who came in contact with her. So if she walked into this room, she would have to yell, unclean, so that way people could get away from her because they thought that she was contagious. They thought, we don't want that kind of filth around us. And so if she had been married, likely her husband would have divorced her. She would have been cut off from normal society. She wouldn't have been allowed to go into the church, go into the synagogue to worship. She wouldn't have been allowed to be in, in regular parts of society like you and I would interact with. She would have been banned from those places. And Mark describes, Mark describes her situation as being so desperate that, that not only was she suffering from this discharge of blood, of whatever that was, but also she was suffering from, from all sorts of medical treatments. She had tried everything. She had tried everything to try and and, and get rid of this. I mean, she probably started by just going to her normal doctor, her, her family doctor, and, hey, doctor, can you heal me? And that didn't work, so she probably moved on to Advocarid and essential oils and, and omnutrition and all those other things, and, and those came up empty. And so, so finally, out of out of desperation, she would have tried any sort of, of medical trials. She would have listened to the, the late-night infomercials, you know, that say, if you try this, you know, don't worry, you're going to be healed. But the side effects— come with colored urine, come with hair growth on your corneas, come with cranial arthritis, come with skin failure. You have all these side effects that, that come if you try this whatever drug or this special treatment or whatever it happens to be. I thought those were funny. I, I, I actually <laughs> really had fun picturing some of those. And so you get the idea. Mark says that she had spent all of her money on these treatments and none of them had made them better. In fact, they had made her worse. So not only is she suffering with whatever sickness she had, but now she's suffering from all sorts of medical treatments that she had tried as well. This wretched woman, she's absolutely broke. She is cut off from her home. She's cut off from society. She's cut off from religion and is in declining health. You kind of get the picture of, of, of what her life is like. See, one of the things that I love about the Bible... One of the things I love about Christianity is, is, is it's really no respecter of persons. It's, here we see two very different people from very, very different representations of society. You've got one, one guy who's rich. You've got a lady who's absolutely poor. You've, you've, got, you've got one guy who's well accepted and respected. And you've got another lady who is the outcast, who's rejected You've got one guy with a strong family, with with strong family ties. You've got another who is all alone. These are things that sometimes we end up dividing over. We tend to say, you know, the rich are going to hang out with people just like them. And the poor hang out with people just like them. And and the outcasts and and the people, they hang out with themselves. And, and, you know, the well-respected people, they hang out with themselves. And we kind of have these things that divide us as a culture. We have these things that divide our city. We have these things that divide us all around us. We think there's no reason for an outcast to be associated with an elite in this society. See, what I love about Christianity is it completely levels the playing field. Both of these people are beyond natural help. Both of these individuals, they are completely helpless on their own. They are both in need of Jesus doing a mighty work in their lives. I mean, Jairus, Jairus, he was the the wealthy man. He was respected. He was all these, whatever you want to say. But none of that matters right now with his daughter's life on the line. It doesn't matter that he was a ruler in the synagogue. It doesn't matter that he was wealthy. It doesn't matter that he was respected. None of that will fix what's going on in his life right now. And that is the life of his daughter on the line. The woman, she had pursued anything and everything to make herself better. And nothing in this world, Nothing in this world could make her right. So you've got two people completely opposites. Completely opposite worlds they live in. And here they are unified under the banner that they are in both in desperate need of Jesus. There's, a, there's, there's nothing within themselves or within this world that can make things right without Jesus. So there's a couple of things that this tells me. A couple of things we have to learn from, from, from just this background. First, first thing we have to know is the answer to the problems in our lives are never found in this world. The, the, the answers to the problems in our life are not found in this world. I mean, what's gone wrong in our heart, what's gone wrong in our lives, cannot be, the answer cannot be found in this world. This world doesn't have the answer. I mean, I mean, you think about these things that we begin to pursue thinking, if I just had some of this, then my life would have meaning. If I just had some of that, then life would be good and gravy and I would be satisfied. I mean, whether, you know, it's money, you know, whether it's it's relationships, whether it's sex whether it's, it's, it's a family, whether it's respect and esteem, or, or, or maybe when we don't get those things, they don't give us the satisfaction we want. We begin looking for other things to give us that satisfaction, and we turn to alcohol. We turn to pornography. We turn to addiction. We turn to stealing because we think, if I then begin to pursue something else, maybe then the things that have gone wrong inside of me will be satisfied. The woman, she had pursued everything. She had pursued everything this world had to offer to relieve her of her suffering, only to find that it made her worse. Only to find that it made her worse. The rich man, he had everything, everything any of us would want from a worldly standard. He had everything that we desire, money and prestige and religion, but none of those things could make things right in his life, right here, right now. See, how I wish this was easier for me to understand— no, I mean, I understand it. I wish it was easier for me to embrace this idea. Because I know, I know we get this. I mean, most of us get this. You know, the, the, we, we can't be satisfied with money. We can't be satisfied with sex. We can't be satisfied with these things, power and esteem. But how many times are we pursuing those things anyways? How many times do we make that thing our identity? And we get it. We, we, we get it. Yeah, that's not what's going to make me happy. But we spend all of our time pursuing these things. We build our identity on these things. And Jesus would just say, man, if you would just build your identity on me. I mean, I know, I know we understand it. But I wish, I wish that was easier for us to actually live it out. To embrace it. To, to own it. To say, this is me. I'm, I'm not just going to understand it, but I'm going to live this idea. The second thing that we, under, we need to see is because of the gospel. Because of what the gospel is. Because of what the gospel need, means we have to understand that the kingdom of God is uniquely diverse. The kingdom of God really is the only diverse, true diversity in the world. We talk talk at Restoration Church about being a multi-ethnic and economically diverse church. We want to see this diversity. Really, there's no logical reason why we should pursue that diversity, though. There's no logical reason why we as a church should come and say, we want to be diverse. I mean, do you know how much easier it would be if we said, you know, we're just going to segregate to our people just like ourselves and worship? Do you know how much easier it would be to do church with people just like me? I mean, it would be wonderful. We would have the Seahawks game. We would, we, there'd be no organization. We would just come and have fun. It would be great. But, but, but that doesn't, not what the gospel, that's not what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God is diverse. It's got to have that diversity. It's got to have people from all walks of life coming together because we all have the same need. We all come to the same point that that we cannot solve our problems in this world. We cannot solve our own problems on our own. It requires us to come to Jesus. The gospel says that every one of us, regardless of our background, regardless of our race, regardless of our legal status, regardless of our financial being, or maybe our lack of financial being, we are all in the same boat. We are all in desperate need of Jesus. See, this idea of sinfulness, this brokenness, it has affected every one of us. From from the people who have it all together, from the world standpoint, to the people who are lowly and rejected and outcast. Every one of us is in need of Jesus. And every one of us has to come to God in the same way. Desperate, broken, unable to fix ourselves. Completely in need of Jesus. So I don't know which one of these people that you connect with most. Maybe you connect with Jairus and say, you know, I've I've been blessed. I have good things in my life. Maybe, maybe, maybe you connect with the woman with the blood issue. Someone who's broken, who's alone, who's been beaten down. Let me tell you, every one of us is in need of Jesus. And I'll tell you, this church— We need every one of you to be a part of what God is doing right here. Because this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. The story continues in verse 27. And it says, She heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. See, the crowd was pressing in around Jesus. And the woman touches him and is healed. And we read that Jesus realized that that power had gone out from him. At that point, he realized there's something that has gone out from me. This is the first time that, in, that Mark uses the word, the Greek word dunamis, which means power, which is where we get the word dynamite. This is the first time that Mark mentions it in his book. And Jesus has this sensation of weakness, of draining, and he knows that there's been a healing. He knows that there has been power that has gone out from him to this woman. And he stops the entourage. He stops the entourage on the way to Jairus' daughter, and he says, he says, he says, I need to find out who touched me. I need to know who did this. says in verse, continue in verse 30, he says, And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, he immediately turned about in the crowd and he said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, when Jesus finds the the person who was healed by tapping into his power, he stops and he tells her, he, he has her tell the whole truth, has her tell the whole story, the whole enchilada of what had happened. And he concludes and he calls her daughter, and here's what he says: He says, Your faith has made you well. See, this teaches us, this teaches us that Jesus has power over sickness. Jesus has power over sickness. There's a couple things that we learn from this. A couple things that we learn from Jesus' healing of this lady. The first thing that we have to understand is is, is this lady wasn't healed by touching Jesus' clothes. There was this, this lady like so many others in this day, there was this idea that if you just touched the the clothes of somebody who was righteous, if you just touched the clothes of someone who was holy, that their their holiness would be poured onto you and that you could be made healed of whatever it was that you had. And so she had this idea that if I just just touch his clothes, that will make me well. And Jesus is not your faith. And, and, And what's interesting, his disciples, they probably point out, hey, Jesus... Hey, Jesus, <coughs> you're asking who touched you. But remember, the crowds are all pressing. Everybody's touching you, Jesus. Everybody is pressing in around you. But Jesus pushes a little further and says, no, this was different. He said this was different. This lady's faith was different. See, the thing that, we, the thing that this teaches us is, is that faith in Jesus is what changes our lives. Not anything that we think we can do. I mean, we think, we think if I just go to church, if I just be a better person, if I just do these things, if I just do these things, then I will be made well and everything will be made perfect. And Jesus is teaching us very clearly. The point is this. The only thing that makes us well is a relationship with Jesus. The only thing that makes things right isn't us 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 being a righteous person, isn't going to church, isn't doing these things. It is Jesus that changes our lives. What's interesting is this lady's faith at its core, it was an ignorant faith. It was a very weak faith. I mean, she had this, this uninformed idea that, man, if I just touch his, 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 his clothes, man, that'll make me all better. I mean, I mean, this shows that she was uninformed. This shows that she had even a superstitious faith. She had a very weak faith, yet her faith in Jesus was genuine and real. And Jesus honored that faith. See, our world has kind of promoted this idea that, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe in as long as you believe sincerely. I mean, this is just this, this mantra of our culture today. It doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you're sincere in your belief, then that's all that matters. This flies in the face of that idea. Jesus is saying, you know, it doesn't matter the strength of your faith. It matters the object of your faith. What you believe in absolutely matters. Jesus is saying, this lady, her faith is is skewed. She doesn't understand how God works, but she understands the object of faith. The object of the faith is the important thing. Is are we putting our faith in Jesus or anything else? Because it is only through Jesus that she's able to experience that healing. God still does the same thing today. We we, we come to God and and we, we don't know much. We don't understand how, how, how everything works. We don't, we don't get it. Beginning faith is often an a, a, a uninformed faith. And it's often sometimes even mixed with errors. You know, for example, we don't understand when you first come to Christ, you might not understand Christ's work. You might not understand the incarnation. You might not understand the, the, the trinity, the atonement, the, the Bible, uh, the idea of grace versus works. But you see, it is often that shallow, that, that immature, that weak understanding. That, that weak faith that God uses to begin a deep and informed and, and trust of God. I mean, we can take courage in this because we don't have to have all of faith figured out. We don't have to have all of God figured out to have a faith that pleases Him. All we have to do is have that object being in the right place. This is why even a child can come to Christ. This is why people who, who have no understanding, no background of theology, no background of the Bible, no background of church, how they can become a Christian because it's the object of faith that is important. Don't, mis- don't misunderstand me here, though. Right doctrine and right belief are, are absolutely important, and we want to encourage people to continue growing in their understanding of God, in their understanding of the Bible, the point here is that a faith that pleases God does not belong only to the informed uh, elite people. It can be to somebody who just has an uninformed faith, but faith in Jesus. Another thing, another thing that this teaches us that is so important is that when we go to God for help, when we go seeking God's help in our lives, he will often give you far more than you bargain for. When we come to God and we want God to do something in our lives, he will often give us far more than we anticipated. This, this lady, she came for healing. She wanted to be, just touch Jesus and run. She wanted to touch Jesus to receive his healing and be on the way. She wanted to say, I'm, I, I'm better now. I'm out of here. I, I'm just going I'm, I'm to be gone. Simple as that. But Jesus wouldn't have it. Jesus forced her to go public. Now you got to keep in mind, her going public was a big deal because of her blood issue, because of her being ceremonially unclean, if she would have touched a rabbi, that would have had, that that was completely forbidden. She would have experienced uh, some sort of tremendous punishment attached to it because she was ceremonially unclean. She wasn't supposed to touch the rabbi, the teacher, the the priest. And so therefore, Jesus' request that she identify herself must have been extremely frightening for her because she could have had to suffer whatever consequence there was. Why do you think Jesus insisted that she go public? You know, partly we have to understand she needed it. Remember, her faith was immature. Her faith was superstitious. She didn't quite understand how Jesus worked. And so part of it was Jesus could correct her understanding of that. She thought it was in the the touch that would heal her. She thought his power was was manageable. But Jesus, Jesus has her come forward so he can say, Oh no, lady, it's not because you touched my clothes. It's because you had faith in me that brought healing. Jesus says, Jesus says, you are, your faith is what healed you, and now that I'm bringing you forward, now that I'm going to have you come out, and, and go public with your story, I'm going to lead you into a transforming relationship, a life transforming relationship with me. By making her go public, by, by not letting go off quietly, by, 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 by having this opportunity to correct and instruct her faith, Jesus is giving her much more than she thought. She just wanted healing, but Jesus gave her a life-transforming relationship with him. This is what the difference is between a superstitious person who gets some bodily healing and a life-transformed follower of Jesus for all eternity. If we go to Jesus, we may ask Jesus, Hey, would you just do this little thing in my life? And I promise you, Jesus will do far more than that, far more than we could ever imagine. Now, if we take a step back from the story, Remember, this was the second story. Well, remember what was happening in the first story. Jairus' daughter was sick. He came to Jesus and said, Jesus, hurry. We got to go to my daughter because she's dying. Jesus, hurry. And then he gets interrupted by this woman. Imagine Jairus' anxiety during this whole time. I mean, this woman with a chronic condition, she's getting attention instead of his daughter who is dying. Jesus chooses to stop and talk to this woman who's just been healed instead of proceeding on to go heal Jairus' daughter. This makes no sense at all. I mean, I mean, if we were in an emergency room, this would have been medical malpractice. If they, if both these people were in a in an emergency room, <coughs> and Jairus's daughter is sitting here dying, and Jesus, the good doctor, stops and deals with the woman with a chronic, long term issue, that would have been malpractice. There would have been a lawsuit to Jesus because he let the little girl die. There would have been there would have been uh, to Jairus. Jesus is behaving like a reckless, foolish doctor. So you've got to picture Jesus, or excuse me, Jairus and his disciples. They're standing there thinking, Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, don't you understand the situation? We've got to hurry back to the house. We've got to hurry so you can heal Jairus' daughter before she dies. And as Jesus is standing there, this is what uh, the, thing that, the, the thing that Jairus feared most happens, happened after all. Verse 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Imagine how Jairus has to feel about Jesus at that moment. Imagine the bitterness beginning to swell. But Jesus looks at him calmly. Verse 36 36 says, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear only believe. Jesus says to Jairus, do not fear, just believe. He says, trust me. Jairus, Jairus, trust me. Believe in me. See, it's, it's funny how sometimes God's timing is so different than our timing. I mean, God's grace rarely operates according to our schedule. See, when Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, trust me, be, be patient, In fact, it's almost like Jesus is looking over Jairus' head and looking at every one of us. And it's almost like he's saying, hey, hey, remember when I calmed the storm. Remember when I showed you that my grace and my love are compatible with going through storms, even when it looks like there's no hope. Even when it looks like all is lost, remember my grace and my love is still there. And I still solve the problem in my timing. Jesus is saying, Right now, my love and my grace are still compatible. Even when it seems that there are delays, even when it seems like God is delaying what you want from me, my love and my grace is still real. It is still compatible. It is still there. He says, Trust me. Trust me. I'm coming. Trust me, Jairus. So verse 37 picks up and he says, And he followed no one to, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. That was the inner circle of disciples. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and, and, and Jesus saw a commotion, saw people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion, and why are you weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And, the, and they laughed at him. They arrive at, at Jairus' house. There's weeping and wailing. She's, she's, she's died. And Jesus says, "Now, nah, she's not dead. She's sleeping. Of course, they laugh at him. They're like, we know a dead child when it's a dead child. We know. We know she's really dead. Come on. We're not, we're not foolish here. The story continues. It says, but he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Well, of course they were amazed. Of course they were astonished. Jairus had come to Jesus seeking a a, a cure for a fever, and, and Jesus resurrected her instead. Of course they were astonished. They wanted just healing, but Jesus gave them a resurrection. This shows that Jesus has power over death. There's two things that we're going to learn from, from, from this story of Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. First thing that we, under, first thing we have to understand is that when we go to Jesus for help, when we go to Jesus for help, not only not only will he oftentimes give us more than we anticipated, but you will also end up giving up far more than you expected to give up. We will give to Jesus far more than we ever expected to give. I mean, Jairus came to Jesus with just enough trust, just enough trust to get Jesus to come to his house, hoping that his child wouldn't die before Jesus arrived. But Jesus demanded far more than that, far more than just come and heal my daughter. After his daughter had died because of the apparent malpractice of Jesus, Jesus looked looked him right in the eyes and he said, trust me, his daughter is dead. What he wanted from Jesus is gone. And all Jesus does is he says, Trust me. Believe in me. Trust me. This was a great test of faith beyond what Jairus ever anticipated he would ever be expected to do. God's timing is always perfect. And and here in this situation, he says, yeah, yeah, you came with enough faith asking for healing and I'm going to demand more of you. I'm going to demand that you trust me for." the impossible. You trust me for resurrection. Something else that we learned about Jesus is dealing with Jairus. God's timing is always perfect according to his plans. God's timing is always perfect according to his plans. As as far as Jairus and the disciples were concerned, it was now practice for Jesus to let the little girl die so he could heal the woman with the blood issue. But we We've been able to read through the end of the story. We know the end of the story. We know something in the story that they did not know. We, 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 know, we know that Jesus, he had the opportunity to, to take a sick woman and, and to heal her, to give her bodily healing and to turn her life into a transformed uh, follower of his. We, 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 we know that Jesus had power over sickness. We we also saw the end of the story of Jairus. We know that Jesus can bring Jairus' daughter back to life. We've seen him do that. We read the end of the chapter. But Jairus and his disciples, they didn't know know that at the time. They didn't know that Jesus was going to be able to do that. They had no idea. It seemed to Jairus and to his disciples that Jesus was delaying for no good reason. But the thing is, they didn't have all the facts. So often what happens is it— God, sometimes it seems like God seems so delaying. It seems like God won't show up when we need him to show up most. It seems like we have these big things going on and we're saying, God, I have all these problems in my life. God, I have these struggles and God, I need you now. And it seems like God is delaying. It seems like, God, where are you at? God, I'm crying out to you. God, I'm broken. I have no one else to turn to. God, I need you now. And it seems like, God, you're not there. It seems like you're delaying. And we get so frustrated. We, we, say, we say, God, you leave me alone in my time of need. And Jairus is saying, Jesus, all you had to do was heal my daughter, but you didn't because you were delayed. I mean, this is, this is the things that we feel inside of our hearts. But I would argue the Mark is teaching us that there is some crucial information that we don't yet have. Some essential, essential v- uh, variable that's unavailable to us. I mean, if... If, if you and I were to go to go get coffee and, and, and I would say, "Hey, tell me, tell me the story of your life. Tell me the story of what 's going on." You 'd say, "You know, I just don 't understand why God isn't coming through. I just don 't understand why God isn 't here. I mean I 've been trying to pursue God and, and, and I 've asked Him for help in my greatest need, and I just don 't understand why God is delaying. Trust me, I know how you feel. I know how this feels. I've been in that situation, so I want to be sensitive with the way I put this. But when I look at the delays of God in my own life, I realize that a great deal of my frustration is rooted in my own arrogance. A great deal of my frustration to God's delay in my timing is rooted in my own arrogance. My complaint is essentially, Jesus, yeah, Jesus, you are the son of God. Yeah, 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 Jesus, you've lived for all eternity. Yeah, Jesus, you created the universe. But why would you know any better than me over what needs to happen in my life right now? I know what's best. See, I'm not God, but my sinfulness causes me to live in this fantasy world of my own awesomeness, that the world revolves all around me, that I'm so special, more special than anybody else. And don't sit there and laugh at me because we all do the same thing. So I find oftentimes that God has to knock the self-righteousness and the arrogance out of my heart by forcing me to wait on his timing by forcing me to realize this world doesn't revolve around you, Kevin. This world revolves around me. I am the perfect God. I am the creator of the universe. I know exactly what needs to happen. And God knocks me off of my pedestal by reminding me the world revolves around him and not me. So we've learned a few things today. But uh, as I come to a close this morning, I want to point out something that really struck me this week, brought me to tears. We've seen in this past few weeks that Jesus has the power over the worst that the world has to offer us. We've seen that Jesus has power over storms. Jesus has power over evil. Jesus has power over sickness. Jesus has power over death. Sometimes we just live in that time where it feels like the world is giving us its worst. It feels like everything is piled on feels like there is so much going on and we feel the weight of the world and we're like, man, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can, can withstand this. I mean, I know, Jesus, you say you're more powerful than all these things, but Jesus, I need you right here and right now because I feel like I can't carry this weight anymore. Remember at the end of the story of, of, of Jairus, Jesus comes into the house. He sits down beside the little girl. He takes the little girl by the hand, and he says two things. The first is Talitha. Literally, that means little girl. But it doesn't get the sense of what it's saying. Really, this is is a term of endearment. This is kind of a pet name. This is what a a parent calls their daughter. This is what I call my daughter little girl. This is what I call my my, my son's little man. This is a, a, a pet term of endearment that a parent would give to a child. Talitha. And the second thing that Jesus says is kumi, which means arise. It doesn't mean come be resurrected. It means get up. So Jesus is doing exactly what any parent with a teenager does in the morning. Sitting next to their child, saying, hey, little man, time to get up. Hey, hey, sweetheart. Hey, baby girl. It's time to wake up. By his actions, Jesus, Jesus is showing, showing us something. As a child, think back to your childhood. Those times that your mom and dad would hold your hand as you walked, would hold your hands, you had the sense that everything was going to be okay. Mom and dad is there. They've got your hand. You've got the feeling the world is going to be just fine. I mean, we were wrong. Of course, we know that. Of course, we know that, 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 that there are hard things that happen in life. Of course, we know that there are, are, are bad parents Of course, we know that even the best parents are imperfect. Even the best moms slip up. Even the best of fathers make wrong choices. But Jesus is finishing this section about his power over all that the world has to throw at us. He's finishing this section with this very tender moment with this little girl. It's as if he's saying this, as if he's saying to us, you know, I'm I'm the ultimate father. I am the, the, the perfect father. And, and by taking this little girl's hand and saying, Talitha, little girl, honey, sweetie, get up. I got this. It's as if Jesus is looking at every one of us and saying, you know what? He's sitting there holding our hand, saying, hey, little man, I got this. Hey, Kevin, you're not alone. Hey, Kevin, we'll get through this. And it's that sense of of being a child, of having your parent hold your hand and saying, I got this. We're going to get through this. I got this. And this is so wonderful that Jesus puts this at the end of the story because, because the world has thrown everything at him. And Jesus has just conquered everything that this world can do. He's conquered the storm. He's, he's, he's powerful over evil. He's powerful over sickness. He's powerful over death. And Jesus, in this tender moment, at the end of those things, he takes the little girl with a hand and it's as if he's telling every one of us, hey, I got you. It's okay. I don't care what the world's throwing at you. I got you. I got you. The worst that the world can do to you. I got you. I got you. Would you pray with me? God, we've had the opportunity the last couple of weeks to hear just how powerful and mighty you are. That God, there's nothing in this world that you don't have power over. And God, that means that there's nothing in our lives that you don't have power over. That all those things that we feel the weight of, all those things that we feel the frustration, all the things that we feel, man, I just don't know if I can do it anymore. Jesus, you are more powerful than all of those things. But God, really... What I want to experience right now is I want to experience you holding my hand, saying, I got this. Saying, it's okay. I got this. God, what I want for each of us to experience today is I want to feel your presence. I want us to feel your presence around us, that we would know that you are with us, that you are more powerful and stronger than anything in this world, and that you will carry us through the hard times. That you will defeat things altogether one day. But even right here, even right now, that you will sit on the bed beside us. You will hold our hand and you will say, you are my son. You are my daughter. I got this. I got this. God, I pray for those who have had a week like I have. And you feel beat down. You feel exhausted. You feel the world beating on you. God, I pray that we would have the ability just to cry out to you today. Say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need your presence right now. I need to feel your presence around me. I need to feel your love. God, I pray for those in here today that that sickness is is something that they're experiencing in their family, that death is on the horizon. God, I pray that we would understand that death is not final. To you, death is nothing but sleeping because someday you're going to come back and we're going to be able to, to live with you in eternity. That, that, that death is nothing more than just a sleep because we are going to be with you in heaven. That God, you have power over all of these things that we don't have to fear sickness because you are stronger than that. And we don't have to fear death because you are stronger than that. God, I pray that we would have that kind of faith, that, that we would believe these things, that you are stronger than all of this world can throw at us that we don't have to fear this world because we have you. God, I pray that, that, that wherever we are in our faith, that we would put our faith in you, not in our religion, not in what we can do, but our faith would be in you. And that just as you showed up and you healed this, this woman with the blood, that God, you would come into our hearts. And, and no matter where we are in our faith, that as we look to you, that you would show up in mighty ways that we would feel your presence. God, we are so thankful for who you are. We're thankful that you are more powerful than we could ever imagine. I pray, God, that through these opportunities of hearing your word, uh, that you would expand our faith in you, that we would see you for who you are, and that we would give total surrender to you because you are worthy, because you are, 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 are worthy of all of our praise. God, as we have the opportunity the next ten minutes to have a time of response, God, I pray that you would allow us those of us in here today who just need a crowd to you God, I pray that we would do that. I pray for anyone in here today that that say hey, pastor pastor i 'd love for you to pray for me God, I pray that during these this, this next song that they would come forward and say, pastor pastor, i' just a burden I need you to pray for me I pray that, that, that as we respond, that, that some of us in our place where we're, where we're standing, that we would just have the ability to get lost in worship for who you are. That God, we don't deserve your grace. That we don't deserve your love. That we don't deserve your power. But God, because you love us, that you are here to meet us here today. And I pray, God, that that would help us to get lost in worship and praise for who you are. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for, for meeting us here today. We ask this in your perfect name. Amen.